The text that we've got uh, tonight is in John's Gospel. The chapter is chapter 6. The passage starts at verse 16. And the passage is headed, Jesus walks on the water. And it's on page 1070 if you want to follow it in the church Bible. Let us hear the word of God. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat, and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place, where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Looking round at you tonight, uh, some of you I know Some of you I don't know quite so well. I know some of the names, but generally I don't know much about you. I don't think I know what most of you do, and I don't know the kind of circumstances from which you come. But I'm going to guess that I do know one thing about all of you. And if you don't think my guess is right, you can come up and tell me afterwards. But I think you're all frightened. At least from time to time you are frightened, you are scared, you are fearful for all sorts of reasons at different times of course and in different ways but we all of us can be scared and frightened and I'm guessing that and I'm guessing that that's true because I know it's true of myself. I can be frightened and I can be scared And I can be fearful about all manner of things. For example, health. That pain that doesn't seem to be going away. That persistent cough. And is that a lump? Or the health of others that can be so frightening for us. Those that we love, those that are close to us. In our families, amongst friends and neighbours going for a hospital appointment, a hospital treatment, waiting a result from the doctor. There's a car sticker that my wife and I quite like. It says, you can't frighten me, I've had children. It's not true. It's when you have children that you really begin to know what being fearful and frightened can be all about. Maybe it's your work that frightens you. 
the job that you're doing or the job that you want to do or the job that you want to hold on to or your exams, your research, are you going to get that qualification? And we can be very frightened and fearful about relationships. The kind of relationships that we make, can we sustain them? Are they going to work? Is it going to be worth the risk of the relationship? One of the things we've heard a lot about in recent years is people's awareness of how they look, their body image, and the way that many people are frightened about how they appear, how other people see them. It's a great driver for behaviour. Or reputation. What do other people think of us? If I do that, if I say that, what are people going to to think of me, we can be very fearful and very frightened about our reputations. Or we can be frightened about the world in which we live. At the moment, the security level in the UK is severe. And the authorities have told us that that means we are very likely to have a terrorist incident. I don't know if you think about that, but if you live in a city like Oxford, or if you travel to London, or you travel at all on the main transport networks, you can start to think about these things. Three Sundays ago, we were in a, a very, very crowded tube in London, in the underground. Extremely crowded, absolutely pressed like sardines. And the train stopped between the stations for quite a few minutes. And you could just feel the level of panic just kind of beginning to rise in the carriage. And then the train moved on. Of course, if we live in so many different parts of the world, Pakistan or Iraq or parts of Africa, then Christians are very fearful and very frightened when they go to church and when they come away, as we know. Or maybe your fears or our fears are rather vague and ill-defined. You'll have read during this week that a woman called Sally Brampton, who was an author and a, a publisher and a broadcaster, And she wrote a lot about mental depression from which she suffered. One of the things she said was this, and I took note of it when they were giving her obituary. Every day is another day in the process of dying. Well, if that's your view, if you're so frightened of death, then indeed it's something to be fearful of and frightened indeed. So I'm saying that we're all prone to being frightened, to being fearful at one time or another or in various ways. And therefore, how astonishing it is for us when we read in our text tonight those wonderful words of comfort of Jesus to his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. He said to them, It is I Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If I were to ask you what do you think are the commonest commands or the commonest command in the Bible, I wonder what you'd say. You'd probably say, well, it's love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And indeed, that is a command that's in the Old Testament and the New Testament and a very prominent and important command. But I've heard it said, I've not checked it, but I believe it to be true that the commonest command in the Bible is this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be frightened. Don't be fearful. 
I didn't realize when I was preparing this sermon during the week what Dan was going to be preaching on this morning, but let me take some verses from the text that Dan was speaking on this morning in, uh, in Numbers. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. An absolutely marvellous declaration of comfort and reassurance to God's people. Now, there are so many examples of this command in in the Scriptures. Let me take another one from one of my favourite psalms, the beginning of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Absolutely marvellous verses. Reassuring and comforting in the extreme. Don't be afraid. Or just one other example from the familiar story at Christmas, the shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem on the night when our Lord was was born. You remember the familiar words, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. The commonest command in the scriptures Do not be afraid. And these words of Jesus at the very heart of our text tonight, it is I, do not be afraid. Somebody once said that there are verses in the Bible or there are texts in the Bible which are a bit like sweets. You can suck on them. Like a boiled sweet or a jelly or a nice chunky piece of chocolate. And there you are, it's in your mouth and you're savouring it and you're relishing it and you're delighting in it and it's a source of comfort and pleasure to you. So are some texts. And I suggest this is one. It is I. Don't be afraid. And I wonder if there is perhaps someone here tonight who's going to take these words particularly to heart. I said at the beginning that I don't know much about you, but perhaps someone who needs to hear these comforting words of Jesus. It is I, don't be afraid. So let's turn to look at our passage in John's Gospel, chapter 6. And it's the fifth of the seven signs in John's Gospel. The seven signs which are very strategically placed throughout the Gospel. And they're signs, they're pointers to Jesus. They're pointers to who Jesus was and who Jesus is. There's a little story that's always amused me of a a little girl that's drawing a a picture. And her mother says to her, what are you drawing? And the little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And her mother says, but nobody knows what God looks like. Ah, says the little girl, they will do when I've finished. (laughs) These signs in John's Gospel are pointing to Jesus And they're pointing to God and they're telling us what God is like and God is like Jesus. It's a great question for us. What is God like? We may have some sense of God. We may have some understanding of God. But what is he like? What is he like? What are we to make of him? What are we to think of him? 
and these signs in John's Gospel. Wonderful pointers to what God is like, to what Jesus was like and what he is like. He's Christ, he's the Son of God, and there is life in his name. Right at the end of John's Gospel, very helpfully, John explains what these signs are all about. Chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He is the Christ. He is the divine Son of God and there is life in him, life in his name. And I want that life. And I think the world wants that life. I know the world needs that life. Now when we look at this passage, we need to see it in its context. The passage that precedes it, the fourth of the seven signs, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Interestingly, the only uh, parable, uh, the only miracle apart from the resurrection in all four Gospels. And the very last verse of that passage, verse 15, says, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, the people knew he was special. They began to begin, they began to see that he was a prophet. And they wondered if he was the king, the political and military king, who was going to come and throw out the Romans and re-establish the the great kingdom of of King David. They wanted to make him a, a king like that. And Jesus, who is a king, but whose kingdom is not of this world, he withdraws and he leaves his disciples alone. And it's evening. And it's getting dark. And the disciples are in this boat struggling across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. I've three times been to Israel twice on church business, and then the last time was a holiday. And the first time I went, we went, a colleague and I, to the Sea of Galilee. And we went to Tiberias. And Tiberias is quite a big uh, holiday resort now. It's a great favourite of Israelis. They go there on holiday in the holiday season. And the Church of Scotland, my church, has had a an institution there for very many years. It started off as a hospital. It became a hospice. It's now a hotel. And my colleague and I were out there on business with the hotel that was being substantially upgraded and renovated. And I remember staying in a hotel just down near the shore called the Caesar Hotel. It's one of these three-star hotels. You're quite a nice hotel. And we arrived there late in the afternoon and we said, well, let's go and freshen up and we'll get into our rooms and we'll go and have a meal together. So um, I get into my room and I do the usual things that you do. You unpack and you put your passport and your money into the safe if you can find it and generally freshen myself up and got ready to go down and into the dining room and my room was I suppose about the 7th or 8th floor overlooking uh, the Sea of Galilee and it had a little balcony and I had a few minutes so I opened the door to the balcony and I stepped out 
And there, you know, below me, was the Sea of Galilee. First time I'd ever really seen it. And I'd read about the Sea of Galilee, and I'd sung about the Sea of Galilee, and I'd heard about the Sea of Galilee all my life, and here it was. And it was a lovely sunny evening, and I stood and watched for a minute or two, and as I watched, I noticed quite suddenly the surface of the water became quite ruffled, and the wind got up from apparently nowhere, and you could begin to see the waves starting to rise on the surface of the sea. And I remember reading that commentators will tell you that the Sea of Galilee is so configured that storms can come up very suddenly and it can get very rough very quickly. As we'd approached the Sea of Galilee and as we'd approached Tiberias, we had that rather strange sensation. Some of you who've been there will know what I'm going to say. At the side of the road, there is a sign with a big blue wavy line on it saying sea level. And of course, you go down way beyond sea level. What is it, 400 feet below sea level? And then the Golan Heights, the Golan Hills at the far end of the Sea of Galilee. The configuration is such that you can have these sudden storms that rise. And I was remembering that marvellous account of how Jesus calms the storm. Do you remember he's in the boat and he's asleep at the back of the boat and there's a sudden storm and the disciples are frightened and they wake him and he says to the sea, peace, be still. And there's a great calm. And he says to his disciples, why are you so frightened? Have you no faith? And we are told they're terrified. And they see, who is this? They say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And that was a very moving experience for me all those years ago. And here we have it. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or, four, uh, three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. And they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. It's the great impossibility, isn't it, walking on water? If you want to cite something that's pretty impossible, well, you'd probably say walking on water. It defies all the laws and it's, it's, just, um, it's just not possible that you can walk on water. Although those of you who follow magic may uh, remember that some of the great illusionists um, have walked on water. And if you're interested, when you go home, go onto YouTube and uh, search for Dynamo and you'll see him walking out to the astonishment of the crowds onto the River Thames. But it's the great impossibility. And provoked here, I'm sure, by Jesus' love and his compassion for his frightened disciples. And also so many years later for us. For my friends, these words come to you tonight as they come to me, as they came so long ago to the disciples. It is I, don't be afraid. And the phrase, it is I, is so close to that phrase, I am, and the commentators point this out. I am was the revelation of God's name to Moses at the burning bush. When God commanded Moses to go and extract his people um, from Egypt and into the promised land, and he revealed himself to Moses, Moses said, who shall I say has sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. The great divine name, Yahweh, or Jehovah, translated Lord. 
Jesus is Lord. It is I. I am. He is Lord and we are able to turn to him and enjoy his lordship. And don't be afraid. The words of a saviour surely. The invitation comes to us. The command comes to us. To all of us in our fears. In our anxieties. In our worries. In our depression. When we are frightened and scared. It is I. Don't be afraid. Well we'll still have our fears in this life. They are not eliminated. But my friends I promise you. I promise you they grow less. They grow greatly less and we can be quieted and we can be calmed and we can be confident when we turn to Jesus Christ and hear his words not to be afraid. I like the picture of faith and trust as putting our hand into our Lord's hand, holding hands. You've seen a child come to the edge of a road. There's lorries, there's cars, there's, there's buses. Most frightening of all, there's bicycles. And what does the child do? Puts its hand into its parent's hand, its mother, its, its dad or an adult, or perhaps the adult stretches down and takes the child's hand across the road. It's a great sign of faith. We see it all around us. Or when you meet your boyfriend or your girlfriend, what's one of the first things that you do? You hope to do. Hold hands. How many people have died holding someone's hand? Holding hands, I think, is a, a real sign of faithfulness. Trust, confidence, assurance in one another, but above all in Jesus Christ. And another of my favourite psalms, Psalm 16. I've often thought of this. Because he, at my, he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. It's just as if we put out our right hand and he's there. And we can hold him by the hand. And as we know, nothing can take us out of his hand. As he tells us in John's Gospel. So surely this word to us individually tonight and also a word to us as a church, as a congregation. Down the years this has been taken as a picture. The little boat with the disciples. The water's grown rough. They're troubled. They're frightened. This is a picture of the church. The church with all that confronts it and all that confuses it. And certainly the church when Jesus is not with them. So I'm saying two things. I'm saying first of all that this passage says to me that we can all be frightened. At different times, in different ways. But we can all be scared and fearful. And if you think I'm wrong, come up and tell me later. Various things can do it, dark things, being alone. Shakespeare said the heartache and thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It's our human condition. It's what we all face. From time to time at least we're frightened. But secondly, I'm saying that Jesus, uniquely and wonderfully, can reassure and comfort and strengthen. We're not alone. We're never alone. But I've not yet mentioned what I think is the greatest fear of all. And it's certainly mine. 
And that is the fear when you realise that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And we have, through our sinfulness, provoked his anger and his wrath and his judgment. We stand condemned. And there's really no other way that I can read the Bible. There's no other way that I can hear the words of Jesus, but to hear them fearfully. Let's go back to that passage that Dan was talking about this morning. If we read on just a little bit further, we would come to this. The Lord said to Moses, how long will there be people here to treat me with such contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Fearsome words. Frightful words. Or these words of Jesus. Just a day or two before his crucifixion, he tells that wonderful parable of the sheep and the goats. And this is how the parable ends. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes? or sick or in prison and did not help you. He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I think those are terrifying words, and they certainly frighten me. They're not man's words, they're not my words. The words of the divine Son of God, for whom there is no ambiguity in the reality of heaven and of hell. So perhaps supremely here, if this is our fear and if this is what frightens us, we have these comforting words of Jesus. It is I, don't be afraid. Because he's done all that's necessary for our comfort for our rescue, for our salvation, through his passion, through his suffering, through his death, through the cross. And all this confirmed wonderfully in his resurrection. And so we can have our fears allayed. We can have our anxieties and our stresses and our worries quieted and calmed. And above all, we can turn to him for our salvation. And we can rejoice in him that he is our saviour. Paul said, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And again, therefore there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, when we seek him, when we seek to love him and trust him and believe in him and put our hand in his, there is no condemnation. We are free. 
And we can look forward to that life that is in his name, that life that is in all its fullness. As I come to a close, I want to add a third point by way of conclusion. I want to say as we accept and embrace and trust Christ's words, we are changed. We are changed. We are transformed. There is new life. And as we are changed and as we are transformed, those around us can be changed and those around us in the world can be changed and transformed. Today is Pentecost Sunday. We're looking at Jesus walking on water. We're looking at the way he confronts us and comforts us with his command not to be afraid. And I'm suggesting it will change us and transform us. And these are the words that were published just this week as part of the season of Pentecost by Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and by John Sentamu, the Archbishop of York. And when I heard them, I thought, that's great. I really believe that. That's just what I believe. And as this is being recorded, I better read them. There is nothing more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ. It flourishes and overflows to our friends, to our family, to those we work with to everyone we know. And when the church is full of the presence of Christ, we overflow and transform society in the most beautiful way. I really believe that. That's the gospel for me. And the gospel is public truth. It's not just private truth. It's not some simple individual thing for us. It has implications for all of those around us and implications for our world. And if we believe these words of Jesus and if we take them to heart, they will change us. They will transform us. And they will have a sweet influence on all around us. And I leave you with these words of the great Church Father St. Augustine. A prayer Lord, change the world and begin with me. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, lay these words in our hearts. Speak to us. Speak to our fears. Speak to our anxieties. And let us hear again and hear so clearly and so powerfully and to each one of us the words of Jesus. It is I Don't be afraid. And with that sense of of peace and assurance, let us go out into the days ahead, in his name and in his strength. Amen.